Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Hello and welcome to It Could Happen Here with me, Andrew, of the YouTube channel Andrewism. And today I'm joined by... Garrison is here. Greetings. And Mia also here. Hello. And I wanted to talk about the idea of the noble savage. It's something that people have occasionally brought up in my comment section uh, when I discuss really anything related to... Hmm... Maybe there's something to learn, something to be learned from the indigenous people of um, pre-colonial period. There's often this accusation levied against any sort of positive um, representation of their society, any sort of generous reading of their society as something to be scoffed at, as something to be ridiculed, as something to be you know, seen as perpetuating this trope of the noble savage. And so I was in some sort of, at first I was in sort of a, um, I got into a sort of defense mode and I was like, well, hmm, I really don't want to do that, right? I don't want to create this caricature of indigenous peoples in my videos um, that, you know, falsely represents all their complexities and stuff, obviously, Every group throughout history has had many layers to them. And then in reading Dawn of Everything by um, David Graeber and David Wengro, I ended up stumbling upon even further information on the subject. And so that's something that I want to talk about. You know, this idea, this, where the idea of the noble savage came from, how it's used, and I think how we should be approaching it today. But before I even get into all of that, 
are you all familiar with this term and how it's used? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's I don't know. It it, it is interesting in the way that it kind of like I don't know. There there was kind of this shift of it being used as a term to critique sort of like racist white fantasy to being a, a term that's used to sort of bludgeon anytime anyone like has the temerity to suggest anything in another society then this one could have possibly have been better which is a kind of grim shift i think in a lot of ways and i think has done a lot of political damage by people who sort of don't quite understand what was going on yeah uh it, and that is a shift that i noticed as well and for a while i thought that was really how the term was originally meant to be applied. I mean, we see it all over discussions of anthropology and philosophy and literature, which, you know, it could be extended to media as a whole, right? You have this sort of stock character of the noble savage, this person that's uncorrupted by civilization, something that, some, a person that symbolizes this sort of innate goodness and moral superiority, living in harmony with nature that, we don't have access to because we've been corrupted by the influences of civilization, right? It's this idealized concept of an uncivilized or sort of base man, right? Or rather person. And I mean, we see it a lot in rightist discourse being used as a tomb of derision. For example, a right-wing Australian politician named Dennis Jensen once told Parliament that the Australian government should not be funding people to live a noble, savage lifestyle in remote indigenous communities. Jesus. And so yeah, Christ, and he, it's, it's used to mock the so-called backwards lifestyles of indigenous people and really try to reinforce this um, white supremacist idea of their inferiority or their backwardness, uh, their regressiveness, whatever the case may be. And then on the other side, in leftist political discourse, you also see it being used as a term of derision. So on, on, in both cases, it's being used uh, as a term of derision without really a, a good grasp of what the term is, where it came from. It, for example, anarcho-primitivists are criticized for upholding this trope. And of course, leftists criticize other leftists for falling for the trope, for falling for the trope, when describing indigenous histories, spiritualities, and social ecologies. It seems like you can't even bring up um, any sort of reciprocal gift economy-based relationship with the land that an indigenous group might have had without somebody saying, oh, well, did you know that indigenous people also perpetuated extinctions and genocides and this, that, and the other? Um so I, I really don't think that anytime you learn from a society that predates your own and may still persist that you're doing a noble savage, but it is um, something that I had become very conscious of in my approach to any sort of discussion. I feel like it sort of haunts the discourse among other sort of stock characters and troops that permeate in our political conversations. Within media, the trope has, you know, come in and out of fashion. Um, but the two main forms that it appears in is one that it 
life is strenuous, the life of a quote-unquote primitive is strenuous, and therefore this savage is nobly brave, hardworking, and honorable. And you have this other depiction, which is that the savage, and again, it pains me to use the term every time, but the savage is not greedy and just doesn't have a taste for luxury. So it might, you see it in, in, in certain media. It's been a long time since I've watched The Road to El Dorado. But if I recall, there is this sort of idea within um, the movie that they're so used to this, the decadence and stuff of, of gold and whatnot that they don't consider it as valuable. They consider it worthless. So there's this aspect of the trope that treats materials traditionally considered valuable um, to be something to be sort of shrugged off or flaunted. And then, of course, because what is philosophy, what is really our ontology without some sort of reference to um, the stories embedded within the Christian canon, right? There is this sort of interpretation of the story of the Garden of Eden as this as Adam and Eve be in these noble savages that live in this uncorrupted innocence and harmony with nature. And then they have to, they partake in this fruit from the tree of knowledge or, you know, they become quote unquote civilized. And then they're punished by having to engage in agriculture and have to labor over the land instead of living in harmony with it. So it's one interpretation of that of that story is that it's a metaphor for the dawn of agriculture and the Garden of Eden as a sort of nostalgic take. Even later on, when Europeans first encountered um, hunter-gatherer communities in the Americas, they compared them to being living in this sort of Eden. And today, um, you still find comparisons to Eden um, used to describe certain hunter-gatherer societies. And then, of course, uh, as this is quite topical, you often see this criticism of Noble Savage and whatever being levied against Avatar, as in the blue people, not the, <laughs> not the last airbender, um, because they have this sort of, oh, we are these utterly perfect, you know, peace-loving space hippies, all in harmony with nature, chilling and vibing, uh, we literally have sex with trees kind of vibe. Um, and I haven't seen the second movie in the series. I only saw the first, but I wouldn't be surprised if that trend continues. I don't know. Have you all seen either or both of them? I saw the first one and I was like, I'm no, not, nothing on earth can compel me to see the second one. So <laughs> I have no idea if it's true or not. <sighs> yeah. And I mean, the, the concept of the noble savage, it has its roots a lot further back than European encounters with Native Americans, right? That sort of, the intellectual lineage of the concept could actually be traced back to ancient Greece. So if you really want to reach, you could say that even back in the Akkadian epic of Gilgamesh, that Enkidu as a sort of bushman was a kind of a depiction of that contrast between hunter-gatherer societies and agricultural societies that Gilgamesh represented, of course, you know, civilization. Um, but 
Ephraim starting from ancient Greece. Uh, we could say we've seen Homer and Pliny and Xenophon all idealizing the Arcadians and other groups, whether they were real or not. And then later on in Rome, um, you find Tacitus, for example, writing of the noble Germanic and Caledonian tribes in contrast with his view of Roman society as this sort of corrupt and decadent place. He even wrote speeches, like <laughs> he practically wrote fan fiction about liberty and honor for his sort of caricatures of these people. Um, other writers would also treat the Scythians comparably. You'll see it in the works of Horace and Virgil and Ovid. And then further on, you know, in the 12th century, um, the polymath Ibn um, Tufail wrote in his novel, The Living Son of the Vigilant, this idea of this sort of stripped down, back to the roots, earthy wild man who is isolated from society and has a series of trials and tribulations that lead him to knowledge of Allah by living this life in harmony with Mother Nature. Basically, theorizing this idea that people can find, can find their way to, to God just by being exposed to nature. Finding a th sort of a theological understanding by understanding the natural world. Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit tomboyx.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
all of this is sort of a preamble to really what most people point to as the origins of the concept, the modern myth of the noble savage. It's most usually attributed to 18th century Enlightenment philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and he believed the original man was somebody that was free from sin, appetite, or the concept of right and wrong. And those deemed savages were not brutal, but noble, or at least this is how the story goes. The idea can also be found in theology. The founder of the Methodist Church, for example, John Wesley, again, just like the Andalusian um, novel writer, believed that, you know, there's this idea of man in the beginning at the roots uh, connected with nature is not as corrupted is more connected with nature and with God compared to the so-called degeneracy found in 18th century society, compared to the disease and materialism seen throughout the world. David Graeber, um, in one of his recent posthumous works, um, Pirate Enlightenment, and in a lot of his other works as well, he sort of grapples with, with this idea of the Enlightenment, right? And how flawed our understanding of the Enlightenment is, how our approach to the Enlightenment as a sort of era um, unique to Europe or this era centered upon Europe is flawed in its approach because it leaves out the realities that the Enlightenment occurred um, as a result of Europeans' interactions and exposure to the rest of the world. You had these um, European explorers and colonizers and scientists venturing out, trading, interacting with these different groups of people, um, hearing their ideas about things, and then going back and writing best-selling books about these societies and how they believe and what they think and how they organize their society. One chronicler, for example, um, noted that among the Indians, or Native Americans, that land belonged to all, just like the sun and water. Mine and thine, the seeds of all evils, do not exist for this, those people. They live in a golden age, in open gardens, without laws or books, without judges, and they naturally follow goodness. Rousseau, Thomas More, and others also idealized the naked savages as innocent of sin. Another one wrote about how they are equal in every respect, and so in harmony with their surroundings, they all live justly and in conformity with the laws of nature. Basically, we have we just found a whole continent of people basically living in a Garden of Eden. But then this concept of ecological nobility that is perpetuated is, of course, flawed. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, there were cases of overexploitation and damage done to the environment. And yet, we also find in a lot of indigenous groups the living in compatibility with the ecological limitations of their home area, getting familiar with the lands that they live on and what it takes to preserve them for the next generations. A lot of what is seen as this sort of virgin landscape was profoundly shaped by the controlled burns, the horticulture, the herding, uh, and other activities 
um, done by indigenous groups throughout the Americas, for example, in the case of the Amazon rainforest, and in Australia as another case, where the controlled burns really shaped that landscape over thousands and thousands of years. To this day, you know, the methods used by indigenous peoples have been found to be, you know, superior to those used by non-indigenous peoples living in the same habitat. Methods like polycropping, uh, techniques to enhance soil fertility, a sustainable harvesting. And of course, there are these culturally encoded mores that are, you know, placed in these communities that help result in the preservation of these resources. But then you also have to account for the fact that no culture is stagnant. Every culture changes over time. And as a result of the capitalist market economy, there is this pressure to overexploit the land for the sake of profit. You know, a lot of where these documented patterns of uh, land cultivation and land uh, preservation are found is usually in the outskirts uh, and the margins of the capitalist market economy. Such practices can be more difficult to find right in the belly of the beast. For example, um, the Irapa Yukpa in Western Venezuela, they were traditionally mobile over an extensive area, planting food, searching game, and now they're stationary, now they're settled, and now they sort of are forced to adopt a different lifestyle in response to their new material conditions. When you had that lesser population density and greater freedom to roam, it was easier to satis both satisfy subsistence needs and also maintain the health and vitality of the ecosystem over an extended period of time. But now that surpluses are needed, now that agriculture has been um, reduced to a very small portion of the population and that those techniques are now uh, expected to be more intensive in order to keep up with the demands, those lifestyles and those cultural mores and those practices have had to change. But back to the idea of the noble savage, right? And particularly drilling into this idea of the noble aspect of it, right? Because there's some confusion, as Graeber points out, between these two meanings associated with the word nobility. You could say someone is noble in the sense that they are, you know, moral, good, uh, exemplary in their behavior and their etiquette, in their uh, ethical standards. Or you could say somebody is noble in the sense they have this position in a sort of a class system, a hereditary position in a class system, an elevated economic status. Rousseau didn't come up with the phrase, and in fact, he never used it in his writings. What Ter Ellingson, a historian, discovered, or rather explored in his book, The Myth of the Noble Savage, is that the term was coined over a century before Rousseau's birth um, by a guy named, by a French lawyer ethnographer 
named Mark Lescabu. And Lescabu described Indigenous peoples as truly noble, not having any action, but as generous, whether we consider their hunting or their employment in the wars. The nobility was more so associated not with just moral qualities like generosity and, you know, good behavior, but also nobility from a legal standpoint. The lives of freedom, the privileges and the responsibilities that the indigenous people enjoyed were also found, according to Lescarbeau, within the European nobility. In Cannibals and Kings, an anthropologist by the name of Marvin Harris went on to explain why Lescarbeau had recognized nobility among the indigenous people that he visited. In a lot of the band and village societies, there was a level of economic and political freedom that very few enjoyed in his day. And even today, you know, people decided for themselves how long they wanted to work on a particular day, what they would do, or if they would even work at all. You know, they didn't have to deal with the taxes and rents and tribute payments that, and one could even extend to say debts, that keep people today and in the past so confined and restricted in their limited life on this earth. What should have been, you know, this sort of norm or standard, you know, of human freedom is in contrast with European society, just like mind blowing. Yeah, there's another David Graeber. Actually, I've been talking about There Never Was a West a lot recently. And one of the things that he he talks about in that in in There Never Was a West is this like trick that European writers use when they're looking at another society, which is like they 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 present themselves as like people whose behaviors are sort of are entirely rational and they're solving a logic puzzle, and then they go find like I don't know what they consider to be the weirdest thing and so like sorry they go find what they consider to be the weirdest thing that like another culture does and look at it through this you know this lens which draws in the reader to be doing this sort of logic puzzle and trying to figure out oh how could these people do this thing and then you know if if you pull back the lens a little bit and look at like what these supposedly objective european like theorists are doing it's like well okay these guys all have these really weird tea, tea ceremonies and like they eat the they they eat the flesh of their god every weekend and stuff like that and so you get this really interesting but but the the, the when when you read it through their their sort of colonial ethnography you get this image of both societies that's very weird that that lets you sort of that, that that conceals the fact that yeah like when when these european writers are talking about meeting indigenous people like you kind of the way that it's written makes it very easy to sort of like do this colonial thing where you forget that every single french writer who is writing about this lives in like the most hierarchical society the world's ever seen yeah yeah that's so true and it's like, well, yeah, of course, like they, 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 they went to literally any other place on earth and talked to people and were like, oh, my God, these people are like are really free. And it's like, well, yeah, it's because these guys live under the French like and they're like French absolutism. This is like I think Gra- Graeber's line was like this is a society where every single person when they walk when they walk into a dining room immediately knows the class of every single other person sitting around the table by like how they hold their silverware. Yeah, it's, abs- it's absurd, you know, when a lot of the rest of the world is like you know, 
living on the generosity of the people around them, being reliable in, you know, the foundations of, you know, community, not even necessarily, because, I mean, obviously there were hierarchies to be found within a lot of these cultures and communities, but not to the extent that you would have found in, in some of these European societies, not even close yeah, these are the the European like I don't know like Europe has been really really I mean you know this is the, the the sort of organizational trend of European society for like the last like four or five hundred years has been just in, like incredible unfathomable centralization on 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 a level that was just is just sort of incomprehensible to most of the people who've ever lived, but we treat as sort of normal now because it's a society that we've grown up under. Yes, it's an. <laughs> I'm trying to draw a comparison between Europeans encountering this level of freedom in other societies and sort of like, I can't think of any specific example right now, but you know how, you know, growing up as a child in a particular household, your house would have certain norms that you think is just like universal, you know, like everybody does this. Obviously, this is just a fact of life in the universe. But in yeah. reality, it was just like some weird quirk when your parents had that <laughs> you just had to grow up with. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like for example, oh, this is a really weird example, but let's say, for example, you had uh, like ceramic dishes were not allowed to be used ever, right? They were purely for decoration. And your parents told you that it's some grave moral sin to eat off of ceramic dishes and then you go to somebody's house and they have all their plates laid out and you're like you're utterly baffled by how they're able to eat off of ceramic dishes if i could think of a better example um but for now yeah that's what i'll I'll roll with Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit tomboyx.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet that's right up to $1,500 again sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in Ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park that's 1-800-GAMBLER Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Anyway, despite recognizing all of this freedom and stuff, they were kind of like disgusted by it, at least some of them. You know, some of them, when publishing their texts in Europe, would put their own liberal ideas into the mouths of indigenous people to say, oh, I'm not saying this. This is obviously like treasonous, and I would never say this. But this indigenous guy who I spoke to the other day, he said it, and so I'm just publishing what he said. Um, So that took place sometimes. Um, And then there were also those who were like utterly disgusted by the liberty uh, exhibited in in some of these societies. Um, But whether they saw that freedom as a positive or as a negative, um, despite all their fluffy words about indigenous liberties, that didn't really matter for indigenous people at the end of the day. Because, you know, through the centuries, empires continued to swallow indigenous lands. And the phrase basically disappeared for about 250 years because the idea of the noble savage was reversed by this stereotype of the dangerous, brutal savage. Like, how dare they defend their land and way of life, right? It wasn't until 1859 that the term was resurrected by a guy named John Crawford, a white supremacist. Uh, He wanted to become president, or rather, he was attempting to become president of the Ethnological Society of London. And he was very disdainful of this idea emerging in anthropology and philosophy of universal human rights. Like, how dare you, you know? Uh, So he introduced the phrase, uh, resurrecting it after 250 years to make a speech to the society. And by the way, he's the one who first misattributed the speech, um, the phrase to Rousseau. Basically ridiculing using the noble savage as a term to ridicule those who sympathized with such, quote, less advanced cultures. And so that sort of fabrication where he attributed it to Rousseau and he built up this straw man to blow it down, you know, it's basically this myth of the myth of the noble savage. He creates a straw man of the noble savage as a myth and then that's what's perpetuated. But his myth of the noble savage was the one that was a myth. So it's, you know, <laughs> the myth of the myth of the noble savage. And so as the British Empire was reaching the height of its power, and he was, you know, trying to ridicule anybody who had anything nice to say about indigenous people, that Strawman was used to continue to advocate for the extermination. Crawford's version of noble savage became the source for every citation of the myth by anthropologists from Lubbock, Tyler, or Boas through the scholars of the late 20th century. So even a hundred years later, people were still using the term that he came up with, rhetor- this rhetorical cheap shot that he used. And at, to this day, it continues to polarize our discussions and obstruct any sort of nuanced approach to hunter-gatherer life. And having 
discovered all of this, I have to say it really made me feel like a part of history. <laughs> there never was a noble savage myth, at least not in the sense of this straw man of simple societies living in happy innocence. Travelers usually accounted for both virtues and vices. They spoke of the positives of these societies and also things that they were too fond of. Both the concept of the noble savage and the concept of the brutal savage are fantasies. Constructions of a European mind that was intent on boxing indigenous people in this sort of suspended state of either purity or evil. Going forward, I think it's really silly to continue to perpetuate the term. I think it really keeps us from engaging with history properly. And I mean, even if somebody is exaggerating or expunging certain aspects of a particular society or culture, that should be engaged with directly. You know, I don't think you should fall back on a lazy trope popularized by a white supremacist. I mean, we live under states now. We live under capitalism now. And I don't think, I don't fault people for trying to imagine what life must have been like before then, before these institutions became so all-encompassing. What becomes an issue is when we take, you know, these past societies and we use them as these beacons of virtue, instead of going back and trying to take their their lessons and their practices and adopting them and interpreting them to move forward. There was a lot of freedom and there still is a lot of freedom left to be uncovered in our history. It is obscured in our history classes. It isn't taught. Instead, we're taught facts and figures and wars and notable um notable individuals. Um, we're taught of kings and dictators and high priests and emperors and prime ministers and presidents and chiefs and judges and jailers and dungeons, penitentiaries and concentration camps. This is our existence now, but it doesn't have to be. And if we're going to have an honest exploration of our history in order to inform our future, we have to free our imaginations of this lazy trope of the noble savage. That's it for me for this episode. You can check me out on youtube.com slash andrewism and also on Twitter at underscore St. Drew, as well as my patreon.com slash St. Drew. This is It Could Happen Here. Yeah, you can find us in the usual places on Twitter, Instagram. And yeah, go be free. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. 
obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit tomboyx.com. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine tingling shows on AE Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 